You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is Danny Anderson welcoming you to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. I'm very excited about this one for two reasons. Uh, one is I get to talk about one of my favorite movies that this year, 2019, has turned 10 years old. Uh, and it's uh, the, A Serious Man by the by Joel and Ethan Cohen. And it's a movie that I think a lot of people kind of sadly don't remember. I recently wrote something about it on its anniversary for a film inquiry. And it's been on my mind. And uh, the second reason I'm excited about this is I get to be rejoicing joined by our old friend uh, C. Derek Varn uh, to talk about this show. And I'm really excited to talk about a movie with him. Derek, how you doing, man? I've uh, been better, but I'm okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, so we're going to talk about the Cohen brothers and Job. The Coens are my favorite contemporary. Well, um, I guess they're one of my four favorite contemporary directors. I mean, I, I like a lot of directors more than them, but most of them are dead. Um, I, I, I have to remind myself that Herzog is still technically a contemporary, so he he does outweigh them. But yeah, I, I love um, I love the Coen Brothers, particularly from this period, um, from like 2005 to say 2012. I think is like a really strong period for them. And, uh, and, and underwatched, I think they're more known for their nineties films. Yeah. Um, but I think these films are better. So, oh yeah, absolutely. And, and I think one thing that about their movies that I just speaks to me and we we're kind of talking a little bit off air is that they're so, they feel so idiosyncratic and kind of quirky and weird, but I think that's because there's just so specific, like the direct directional choices they make, set design, the script writing, every, there's so many like little tiny details that create this really rich world and all of these movies. And they become just endlessly fascinating and, and like great cinema, something you can go back to. And find new layers and new insights every time you watch the movies because they're so loaded with detail. Yeah, I mean, my other thing about them is that they they actually are sort of um, serious theological and philosophical thinkers. Even though I, I'm not sure if they're Jewish or nihilist, <laughs> um, I've never actually been able to figure that out. Um, you know, we could go into. You'd have to look at other films. This, this to me is their most explicitly Jewish film, um, but you know. But it was there, even in the Big Lebowski, with Walter's character having uh, converted to Judaism, right? I mean, it's it's they're they're saying something about Judaism in many other films, um, but in this film, they just like really take a look at it and make it central to the to the to the story and the theme. Yeah. You know, it's it's such a it's such an idiosyncratic movie. I mean, they have a lot of Minnesota movies and a lot of <laughs> um, a lot of Midwestern movies, and this is definitely Midwestern. But it's also Midwestern Jewish, and and with the exception of the of the Goyesha neighbors and the guy with the tooth in the parable, 
Yeah. Um, there's there are very few Gentiles in the film. Um, it, yeah. which is interesting in, in and of itself. Yeah, I can't imagine that in Minnesota there were entirely Jewish suburbs like like this. Like I, I perhaps there were. I mean, Bob Dylan is from you know northern Minnesota, so there is uh, obviously a historic uh, Jewish presence in Minnesota. But I, I just the 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 depth of Judaism, like this, is almost Israel in Minnesota. It's so Jewish, right? Yeah. Well, I was at least like, God, you think it's at least upstate New York, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like the, these places exist, but you wouldn't think about it in Minnesota. Um, I mean, even the university seemed almost 100% Jewish. I was like, where are they at? Brandeis? Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, before we get into it, though, I want to um, have you uh, – I want you to pitch uh, a new endeavor um, that you're about to undertake. Uh, Derek is obviously sort of the, the king of podcasting and you've been doing it forever. <laughs> and you're sort of reinventing what you do a little bit. And I just think it's uh, – our, our, you're, you're always one of my listeners' favorite guests. And, and I know that they follow what you do and i think uh it's a good chance for you to kind of um pitch what you're uh about to begin doing for zero books yeah so zero books and i had a you know we had a discussion <laughs> um i had i went through a lot of personal changes in the last year and i i sat down and i was i was talking to douglas lane my editor and sort of my boss um and i i said hey doug um i don't want to do a left interview show anymore um there's a thousand of them right now. Um, yeah, you know, SR is really old uh, for left podcast. It's you know, um, it started in 2013 and and uh, back Sym- even before symptomatic redness. Yeah, symptomatic redness. Yeah, not sectarian review, which yes. is often confused because I appear in two SRs a lot. <laughs> um, and uh, and I said. You know, I want to do something else. I don't want to do something aesthetic where I talk about um, trends and philosophical fiction and what, you know, the intersection between politics and aesthetics. Um, Or I want to do something critical but historical. Um, And Doug, you know, pretty much humored me and then came back to me a month later and was like, look, we did this show in 2012 and 13. We only did. We did it for a year and two months and uh, and uh, then stopped partly because one of the hosts went – One of the, the there was three hosts originally. One of them kind of went crazy. We're not going to talk about that person. And um, the, the other reason is Doug and I had a fight over Hegel um, and didn't talk to each other for six months. Um, <laughs> that is the most left of sentence you've ever said to me, I think. <laughs> um, it was actually over whether or not Hegel was – being a Hegelian really required you to be a Christian, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, I said, yes, it required you to be some kind of weird heretic. And Doug said, no. And I said some profanity and threw a bunch of quotes at him. And he told me I was a jerk and then I blocked him. Um, <laughs> Um, and then I actually started SR in the interim. Uh, I was a systematic redness in the interim. So he's like, why don't we bring Pop the Left back? But instead of just doing a topical show where we just talk about left stuff from a critical point of view, but still left wing, um, why don't we reinvigorate it by doing kind of a historical conceptual show, really getting into, you know, what you're really good at, Derek, which is researching the history of ideas 
and how like their historical context has changed them. Um, and we'll have discussions about that. And so we decided to bring back this podcast called pop the left, um, about the history of ideas and key events in leftism. But instead of just doing like a pure historical show, instead of like doing Mike Duncan's revolutions, right? I mean, there's already that show. Um, we're going to talk about the parallels between contemporary issues and current issues and kind of, and current issues and backtrack them to these historical pieces and then see how they've changed in time. And what that tells us about the way things are right now, I sort of have this like genealogical slash, you know, materialist way of approaching these things where you tease apart their history and you tease apart the changes in the social context. And you often see that things both make sense in ways you didn't think they did and don't make sense at all. Mm. Um, and, if your listeners have listened to our keyword show where I kind of do a light version of that, just imagine that, but more about Marxism and way more in detail. Yeah. Um, and that's what we'll be doing. Um, probably for several years. We, I, I've literally mapped out enough shows and research topics for about a year and a half. Um, and I did it in an hour. So, <laughs> so um, your listeners might be interested in that, particularly if they don't know a lot about like, the revolutions of 1848. The uh, one of the things that I'm going to be exploring is how different things were in America, mm. um, and how that how the history of the left in America before the 30s has been largely completely forgotten, and how that actually does have an effect on things after the 30s, and in the, the you know the liberal and Marxist lefts in the United States and the, during the Red Scares, plural. Um, and stuff like that and how they are affecting things now because I feel like a lot of people don't really know their own history, um, both as Americans and as whatever political ideology that they are. And I'm very, you know, obviously concerned with socialism. Um, so that's what I'm going to be doing. Um, it's bound to be uh, dry, except I swear a lot and make really bad jokes. So um <laughs> And sometimes really black, jo really black, black humor jokes. Um, you know, the thing about, you know, as Stalin says, the thing the th uh, black jokes are like, are like food. Not everybody gets it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really excited and I love that approach to things. Um, I, I think that it's a way of kind of keeping um history sort of relevant in the contemporary situation. And, and, uh, and I think it's great. Um, I encourage my students to do this kind of thing myself. If I could just, I'm teaching a class on Philip Roth this semester. I'm very excited. I have one student who's writing a paper for her final paper about the new Joker movie through the lens of, um, the politics and American pastoral, which I think is such a, a great topic. And then, um, well, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 And I have another student who's doing a reading of the God's not dead, terrible pure flicks movie, um, through the lens of, um, uh, nemesis with this polio narrative that he um, wrote late in his career. And, uh, and I just think that it's such a great way to, uh, apply, um, kind of received uh, knowledge and rediscover this knowledge and sort of make it relevant to understanding the world today. And I know you're just the guy to do it. And I, I'm really excited to start listening to that. So um, 
So everybody out there listening, if you're already subscribed to uh, Symptomatic Redness or just the Zero Books feed, right? Symptomatic Redness comes up through that. Um, you should be able to uh, soon see uh, Pop the Left uh, popping up in your podcatchers uh, sometime probably next next early next year, I imagine, right? Yeah, um, we're going to do a preview episode, I think, the next two or three weeks. And then the last the last six episodes of Pop the Left, which is me and my original co-host, like, debriefing for six hours about why we stopped doing it um uh which is actually more interesting than it sounds i swear but um but uh um the last six episodes will be coming out on the zero books patreon and some of them will be on the open feed and then pop the left will begin and pop the left will have you know, some of it will be behind Patreon, but I think in every concept there'll be one episode that's for the public and one kind of episode that's probably a little bit more obscure that's uh, patrons only. Awesome, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great new addition, and you're right. The I mean, the left is kind of flooded with podcasts, and uh, I think it's uh, it's a good thing to try and do something a little different. And so I'm I'm real excited about what you're doing there. So, um, uh, so let's get to a serious man. This is a, like I said, 2009. It's basically the story of uh, of Larry uh, Gopnik, who is a physics professor about to get tenure, theoretically, at a, at a Minnesota university. He lives in the suburbs with his family. Um, his and then he just begins experiencing befuddling existential crises. His wife, um, out of the blue, says she wants to leave him for a family friend, Cy Abelman. Uh, and then there is a student who may or may not be bribing him for a better grade. He has a brother who is sort of mentally challenged and uh, in some legal trouble. And uh, and that's all uh, a precursor to other sort of um, existential crises he has about trying to find meaning uh, in, in all of this uh, seemingly random uh, events that, that are kind of befalling his otherwise uh, well-manicured life. And so it's a, it's a very strange uh, movie, and it lends itself to many, many interpretations. Uh, and I think that's kind of what the Coen brothers have in mind, is they want us uh, to accept the mystery, as Larry is told at one point by, um, by a character. And they're sort of tempting us, I think, into seeking answers. Um, and so I, and ultimately I think that's what Larry as a man of science doesn't want to accept, um, anything other than hard mathematics, right? He doesn't want to accept magic and mystery. Uh, and, um, and he comes to find that that is really what the universe is made of. And, and he doesn't know how to react when confronted with that. Um, the movie opens, uh, in a particularly uh, befuddling way with a Yiddish language folktale that um, ostensibly has nothing to do with the main plot. There's a, uh, an, a man comes back to his little shtetl uh, home uh, for, to see his wife. And he tells him that he just met on the road, some old friend of theirs, an old uh, rabbi who the wife says is dead. And therefore you met a Dybbuk, a, uh, an evil spirit who has inhabited this man's body as he lay dying. And, uh, and then the man showed the, the rabbi shows up and, uh, we're never get resolution as to whether he is a Dybbuk or not. And then entering through the lens of, um, just Jefferson airplane music into the main, uh, into the main plot of the movie. What do you make of that opening, Derek? Well, <clears throat> You know, I was thinking about about this because there's a, there's a certain amount of absurdity to it, and there's a whole lot of, uh, you know, the, the reveling in shuttle culture 
um, going on there. I mean, it's not just a rabbi. I mean, it's a rebbe, which yeah. is kind of a, a big deal rabbi. The, the, the Rebbe is probably dead, uh, like at least the wife remembers them dying. And um, not only do you not get the resolution, if the wife is wrong, she kills him. Yes, <laughs> she stabs him with an probably. ice pick. Probably. <laughs> yes. Um, and the Rebbe does bleed eventually, but he also, I mean, he doesn't act normally the entire time. Um. He goes off into the snow, um, bleeding, and and she closes the door as if closing the door to evil, and uh, the, the man thinks he's done for because they just killed a, you know, a Hasidic Rebbe, um, and also like you know, violated so I mean, violated hospitality, violated uh, violated mitzvah, committed a committed a a major avada. I mean, like. Uh, I guess for uh, wait, excuse me. I'll speak. I'll speak English. Mortal <laughs> sin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, so yeah. Um, and and that that sort of sets up these sort of irresolvable paradoxes. And you know, the Coens have have said that this movie is based on Job. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think their Job is also like, if you know the structure of Job, right, you have the prologue and the monologue and then the, fir- the three cycles and then the three monologues and then the two speeches by God. Um, and then there's that epilogue at the end that everybody kind of remembers because Job gets everything back double, right? Yeah. Um, except that if you know anything about higher criticism of the Bible, that epilogue probably wasn't originally there. Mm. Um, it's written in a completely different style of Hebrew. Um, so... And kind of feels like, well, we got to have justice somewhere, so throw that at the end, right? Um, and maybe that's not true. I mean, that's highly debated, but but uh, it seems like their Job doesn't have the epilogue. Um, so it's this is an interesting an interesting take because it's 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 theodicy, but it's explicitly Jewish. Theodicy. For once, you Christians are cut out of the equation. <laughs> it's true. I mean, this is a, a very kind of, I think, um, it can be a very alienating movie if you're unfamiliar with, like, sort of not just Yiddish uh, language at the beginning, but sort of Jewish culture. I mean, there's so many specific references that um, that really are kind of meant for a Jewish audience. And I think I read somewhere, I can't remember, I'll never find this again, um, that for a lot of Jewish families, this is this movie has become kind of like their Christmas story. Uh, it's something that they watch sort of regularly um, with a lot of great great pleasure. It's a uh, it, it's sort of become a uh, uh, like their version of Ralphie and the BB Gun uh, around the holidays. And so um, it's an extremely Jewish movie in that way. And by the way, the 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 Dybbuk is credited as Dybbuk with a with a question mark. And even in the credits, we don't know. Um, and it's and it's uh, he's played by um, the great Yiddish um, theater actor. Finkel. Um, and so it's, it's actually a really remarkable document of a, uh, of a really legendary character in the Yiddish theater. Um, and it's really wonderful. The Coen brothers immortalized him in this film, I think. Well, yeah, I was thinking about like, not just how Jewish the movie was. And we always talk about like, you know, Hollywood's full of Jews or whatever, but how <laughs> Jewish the cast was. Yeah. There's like almost nobody in this movie who's big outside of, very specific like niche theater and 
you know, very specific kinds of movies and everybody is pretty explicitly Jewish. Yeah. Like Adam um, Arkin is in it and he's probably the yeah. person who's and Richard kind. You probably recognize from lots of TV right. work. Right. Um, but, and, and Michael Stuhlbarg has been in um, a few things. He's got a nice filmography, but these are not like big stars. They went to, they went to authentically Jewish actors. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, if you if you're used to a Coen Brothers movie, they usually have one or two people to like pull you in as you know, like a big name. There's none of that in this movie. Yeah. Um, well, there's the dude from The Big Bang Theory. Um, uh, the uh, the little guy, I forget his name in The Big Bang. Yeah, but Theory. he wasn't he wasn't famous yet, was he? I don't think so. I think this was probably at best like at the concurrent beginning to beginning of that series, right? Yeah. 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 Um, I forget his name. The little the little guy from that uh, from that show. But uh, he plays one of the three rabbis. And I want to hold off the discussion of the three rabbis for a little bit. Um, the movie's kind of punctuated by visits to three increasingly wise, supposedly rabbis. And so um, <laughs> and so uh, we'll uh, we'll talk a little bit about that later on. Um, and so, yeah, it, it begins with a puzzle. I think a thought experiment that makes us want resolution. We want an answer. Um, to the mm-hmm. question that we are never going to get. And, and I think the movie is about that very process. It's about um, just basking in being a, in childlike wonder. Um, and that's really the best you can do in the face of adversity. And to actually seek tangible answers is to sort of somehow almost commit a crime against the universe <laughs> to try and reduce it uh, to pure mathematics and equations. You know, um, my favorite fact is uh, engineers and mathematicians are far more likely to become terrorists than any other occupation, <laughs> um, and usually religious terrorists. Um, and and I'm, that's not that's not a made up thing. Um, and I think this gets to why, because Judaism in particular, I mean religion in general, but Judaism in particular, uh, rebels in tradition and ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Um. Why do you do anything in Judaism? Well, because God tells you to. And yes, there's like a book of life. And yes, there may be punishment in this life. Maybe. It's actually controversial among the rabbis. What is, what is, what is the afterlife? You know, um, Jews are actually specifically in some ways, particularly reform and conservative Jews are particularly forbidden to like speculate on that. Mm. Um, because part of the reason why is because Christians exist. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, I, as, as much as that, I, I know that pains your Christian listeners to hear, but, um, uh, my Christian but, listeners are pretty good with things. I, <laughs> but you, you mean a lot of, a lot of it's things like, well, you know, you go speculating about what, about what, uh, the world to come is and what do you get? You get Jesus. Yeah. We can't have any of that. Um, and you get you get all these millenarian sects that tore up, you know, that you know led to the establishment of um, of the uh, Talmudic line, mm-hmm. but like completely tore up Temple Judaism. You know, not ju- not just Christianity, but like you know, um, Sadducees' denial of an afterlife, the various uh, the various um, Talmudic, well, not this pre-Talmudic, but like rabbinic and pre-rabbinic um, uh, Mashiach. People like um, Simon Bar Kopa and uh, Rebbe Akiva, and um, and none of that ends well. Like it basically ends Temple Judaism and leads to the to the you know the establishment of the Exilearchy and all that. 
And if you're not well versed in Jewish history, I probably just spoke a lot of gibberish to you. But like, that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, speculating on on the afterlife and why there's evil is is really hard to do. And the other thing you have to remember about Judaism is a. Uh, uh, that Book of Enoch stuff that Christians latched onto, that all got kicked out. <laughs> so um, I don't think I don't think uh, any concurrent group of, of Jews really uh, uses that. So there's also like the whole idea of Satan as a like almost dualistic force in the universe doesn't exist in Judaism. Okay, yeah, um, and in Job particularly, right? I mean, Satan yeah. is almost like a partner with God. Like he's he's in he's like a a, a courtesan, um, uh, really. Well, I mean, specifically, actually, you know, um, he's a, he's a court accuser. Yeah, that's what the that's what the 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 term means in Hebrew, mm-hmm. at least in the Hebrew now. Um, it's a little bit unclear because you know, um, uh, Hebrew is one of those languages. That ancient Hebrew is. Uh, a little bit more vague and the sepiquence technically older than the Masoretic text. And Masoretic has a lot of glosses on it too for, um, uh, for, so there's debates over what is the actual older meaning, even, even amongst Jews. Um, but, but at least, at least the way it's been understood since say, um, the Masoretic, interpretations of of what El Shatan is. Um, that's not like that's just a title to an angel that has an unfortunate job. <laughs> um, and that that is to like challenge God but but to challenge God in a way that's specifically what God wants him to do. Um, it is not an act of rebellion. And for Christians who are always like, well why is Satan in heaven? Well from the Jewish perspective, well that's he's an angel. Where else would where else would <laughs> Where else would an angel be? Yeah, um, th- because again, the Book of Enoch stuff that leads to all that isn't part of rabbinic Judaism. And at some point, it's reminding me of the of the folk tale at the beginning uh, when Dora, the wife, is sort of explaining her um, position that the, the Rebbe is a is a dibic. Um, that'd be a great song, Rebbe is a dibic. Um, and <laughs> so, anyway, but. Uh, um, she says she says something about the evil one and then spits like on her floor, right? And so, uh, is that what is she referring to there uh, for our Christian audience? Do you think? Um, I, I think something like like a malevolent force. I mean, the evil one is not Hal Shatan, uh, uh, like in uh, like in Job. The evil one could be like Samael and and uh, some of the other demons mentioned in. Kabbalah and even like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. So there is a Jewish tradition of evil demonic figures. Yeah. Also, folk Judaism is full of demons and probably spirits that are imported from like Mesopotamian (laughs) deities and stuff. Like, you know, like that's why the Hand of Homs is a thing. Mm. Um, For those you don't know, that's the war. You know, you've ever seen a bunch of Jewish symbols. Like you're probably familiar with the Star of David and then. Um, which is interestingly not a traditional Jewish symbol. Hmm. Um, uh, that's a modern one. Um, then, you know, older ones would be like the menorah and not the Hanukkah menorah, but the, uh, but the, the regular menorah. Yeah. Uh, and then even older than that would probably be like, um, uh, well, uh, 
And I think the menorah is actually the oldest one, but but uh, another one you see commonly around Jewish households is the hand of Hamza. Like everybody has one. Mm. Um, it's also you see in Arabic culture, and there's an eye. Well, that's probably like actually like a pre. That's probably pre-Christian like folk religion, and that's a lot in like in like in like Jewish folk culture and shadow culture. That stuff is common. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I once you were talking, I can't really remember. It could be. I mean, I've seen this movie many times, and it could be just I, I'm just not remembering the details. But if they're there, I don't really remember Stars of David anywhere. Um, no, there's not. Okay, oh, and 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 so it does seem to me to be a more kind of ancient form of Judaism that they're talking about. I mean, I literally am thinking through the scenes and if they're there, they're very subtle because I can't even picture one uh, right now in a, in a, in a scene uh, and listeners, I'm sure will point out if I'm wrong there, but um, they're certainly not very prominent. Uh, and so yeah. this, is, this is not like a state of Israel Judaism we're talking about here. No, it's a, it's a very, it's very diaspora Judaism, but it's also like, I have t- trouble figuring out, if they were modern Orthodox or conservative mm. um, Jews. Um, and for those of you who don't know your Jewish divisions, like um, modern Orthodox or Orthodox, but like don't look like Hasidim or Haradi, uh, who are the, you know, super strict people who wear 17th century guard and look kind of like the Amish. Um, and, but like the, the, the insistence on a get uh, stuff like those, those traditions, like, that's something you would not see amongst reformed Jews in the sixties. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you're referring to is when, um, uh, Larry's wife insists on a divorce, uh, so she can marry Cy Abelman. They want to get a, a, what's called a get, which is like a ritual divorce within the faith so that they can in good, um, standing be remarried as Jews. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's what you're referring to. And that is sort of a, a paralegal, <laughs> um, um, ritual divorce not not necessarily has nothing to do with the law no it it, it's it is a it is a it is the official like i mean it has to do with halakha not not um not secular law that's what i meant right yeah uh yeah and uh i guess your listeners are going to realize how jewish my upbringing is (laughs) (laughs) because yeah so so what 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 this is fascinating was so when Judith immediately asked for the get, right? But what's interesting about Cy Abelman is he's he's such a even though he's insisting on these traditional things. Um and there's lots of things you can't figure out, like like is the wife cheating on Larry or is this all on the up and up and she just wants to leave? That is completely unclear, actually. Yeah. And Larry is such a, like such a beta minch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that he like accepts her word on everything. But again, what choice does he really have? Yeah. Because he was so blindsided by all of this. Like he completely didn't see it coming. Um, although other characters seem to. So one wonders if he was just daft. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so you have that come up immediately with the get. But then there's all this other stuff like the the fact that their son Danny is like constantly high. Yeah, I was, um, yeah, the children are kind of just brats, right? 
and, and Danny, the boy, is like they're always smoking, right? He's got very vulgar language with his little t- preteen friends. Uh, they're just about to be – he's just about to be bar mitzvahed, right? So he's 12, yeah. I assume, right? He's just about it to would strike us as vulgar now. And so like you think in like 1967. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're just like trying out the F word all the time just to kind of – I don't know, perform some sort of tough guy man manhood sort of, uh, and, uh, and and it's very funny, of course, but it's also just a little weird and quirky, because so, they're utterly nerdy kids, right? And so, right. Um, um, I mean, it seems very true to life, but like, like there's all this, there's this stuff with people owing people money for pot, and then the yeah. transistor radio, um, and you also realize because it, it, it starts off, what is it? it starts off on the sun actually for a second. That's the very first scene after it bleeds in because they're listening to uh, was Jefferson Starship or airplane? Airplane. Which, uh, somebody yeah, that love. comes up a lot. Like that that comes up. That's a reoccurring theme in the, the movie. Yeah, Jefferson Airplane is like the fount of wisdom in this movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, it begins with somebody to love is the uh, is the song. If it wasn't for that song, wouldn't you have thought this was in the 50s and not the 60s it it does feel like early 60s like um sort of pre um hippies right uh there's like you do it does feel more like a uh, um a a pre-cultural counterculture sort of uh, moment except for the pot the pot pot smoking yeah and and the music yeah which which immediately but like the Hebrew school there and it definitely feels like it could be like late fifties, early sixties. Like, yeah, it's very, uh, it's, it's very, you know, greatest generation boomer stuff. It, it reminds me of what I picture in, um, Philip Roth's story, a uh, conversion of the Jews. Actually, it, it reminds me of that, of that Hebrew school. Um, and, and you come in also and you think, oh, my God, is this entire movie going to be in Yiddish? Because, like, <laughs> he's, he's rattling off Hebrew with a heavy Yiddishite accent, um, which, uh, which, again, if you're not if you're not Jewish, you don't know that that's a Yiddishite accent. You're like, oh, it's, I guess that's Hebrew. <laughs> um, and uh, and you're going you're going on there. Right. So that that's that's interesting. That's interesting. And they just take they take he's he he so greatly offends the uh, the old teacher. And, you know, it's also like a different time period, too, because the kids are perfectly behaved until until there's one disruption. But when there's one disruption, the entire class goes insane. Yeah. <laughs> it's true yeah they're just they're just on the cusp of there's uh, they're just barely contained like uh rebellion in the in these children yeah. right yeah um and yeah and so the movie kind of really the the movie as we're given it after the folktale is it begins with danny kind of has smuggled in uh, a transistor radio and is listening to somebody to love uh on his radio instead of listening to his uh hebrew teacher um prepare for uh, his his bar mitzvah right and so and then he gets the radio confiscated and he has to go to the principal and then oh but during that time um there's like intercut scenes where larry is undergoing kind of a medical exam exam right right um and so like the yeah so we have two spaces being represented um through these intercuts yeah so you know i i found that was super fascinating too but um the intercut scenes with um, 
with the, the medical exam, which for, for the longest, and we're not going to get to this yet, but for the longest part of the movie, you have no idea why that's there. Cause it doesn't come back up until literally the last five minutes. Yeah. Um, so you're just like weird. Um, so, and then you meet the daughter who's like, just constantly washing her hair and going out <laughs> like nonstop, I guess. Like, she wants a nose job. I mean, she's very much the kind of prototype of the, of the, of the Jewish uh, daughter, the Jewish American, the Jewish American princess stereotype. Yeah, yeah. In in the suburbs, right? I mean, it's again yeah. right out of a Philip Roth story. I mean, he, she's very much Brenda Potemkin from uh, from uh, Goodbye Columbus. Yeah, exactly. Um, but Larry doesn't feel entirely out of a Philip Roth story. No. So like, so like, that's, what's interesting about this is that is it takes you a while to get to the actual main character, even though you get to him, you cross cut with Danny, but Larry's such a nebbishy, but like seemingly pretty decent person. Yeah. Um, what would you say his faults are other than his mathematical mindedness? I, I mean, I think, yeah, that's exactly right. He is maybe just a little um, oblivious to the people around him. Right. And so he is very meticulous in his appearance and his manners. And he seems to do um, a good job um, with his work. He's committed to his work. Um, he's committed to the Jewish community. Um, he's yeah. And so he does, he seems to be, <coughs> living by the numbers, everything that you're supposed to assemble to live a good life, kind of just on the kind of logical level, right? And I think for him, it never gets beyond an, an academic exercise, right? And so he has this kind of disconnect between other people. I mean, he's even taking care of his brother, right? And so he, he's doing all the good things that good people do. And yet the way he conceives of life seems to be his problem is that he he thinks everything is transactional, right? And, and so if I do X, Y, and Z, this is the outcome that I will have earned, right? And, and so, right. and life does not turn out that way. And he is completely clueless about how to go on when life doesn't follow his logic. Yeah. I mean, that, that seems to be the, the central, the, the central problem. And he's getting that. I mean, he, he, he's being told that, you know, all the characters are kind of telling him he shouldn't be so transactional about it. Um, I mean, there's more than one occasion where they even imply like that sort of transactional mentality is for the goy. Yeah. Um, but it, it's interesting that that's like where he's hung up. But you also you don't get the feeling like he's nice to his brother just because just because that's what he's supposed to do. He does seem genuinely kind of good, but completely clueless. Yeah. Like his kids are brats. So he doesn't really get that. Yeah. Um, his 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 wife is I don't even know. Um, doesn't clearly doesn't love him, but it's hard to say whether she's done something wrong or whether he's just been so alienating that she's found an emotional love with somebody else and now is kind of doing it. I mean, ostensibly for all the information we're giving, given, uh, they haven't been having an affair. They're trying to arrange this to do it, like in accordance, legitly, yeah, in accordance with Jewish law, right? Um, and so, yeah, they're they're trying to um, kind of handle this. And Cy Abelman is a really interesting character. The guy that she um, falls in love with, he's a widow, and he's he's very like as you said, 
learned and devout and he wants to get to do everything right in the eyes of God. But at the same time, the way he talks is hilarious. First of all, it's Fred Melamed is the, is the, uh, the uh, actor that portrays him. And, and he sounds very much like a, a 1960s pop psychology <laughs> sort of uh, yeah. bestseller sort of, you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it's very it's it's very proto hippie pop psychology like feel good, you know, affirmative boomer. I mean, you know, like baby boomer back when that was a young thing. Kind of even though he's a different generation, that like perspective. He he almost feel like you could totally like characters like him um, exist in other movies and they're like hippie psychologists. Yeah. Uh, but he, he's not a hippie and he's very he's he seems to be very orthodox in some ways but we also get hints that he's underhanded yes he he may or may not be trying to undermine larry's attempt at tenure uh through sending anonymous letters to uh the tenure committee right and so right. yeah we he he comes across as very sort of we need to make this work and I'm here to help you and uh, no one made this happen. And yet behind the scenes, there does seem to be some question about his motives, which again, we don't really get any firm answers to. And I think it's one of the movie, one of the movie's strokes of genius is that it keeps presenting us with these things that we are, we're put in the position of that, that it puts Larry into. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's punishing Larry for wanting to know why, 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 why. And then it keeps presenting us puzzles that makes us ask why, 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 why? Yeah, because basically in a freak, in a freak acts in a freak thing, both Larry and Cy have, have car accidents at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And Cy dies. Yeah. Um, but but after that happens, and I know we're skipping ahead, but this will make this make more sense. Um, we discover that that uh, Larry's wife says that Cy was writing positive letters to the tenure committee, but we only know of negative letters being sent. Yeah. So we don't know if if uh, the wife is telling the truth or what she was lied to, or if. If Cy really was writing good letters, I just didn't mention it. We have no idea. Yeah, yeah, it, it's 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 a proliferation of puzzles um, that that never get resolved. Um, it can't be all the way to the last <laughs> second of the movie, right? Uh, and and there's yeah, and there's and there's no way we'll ever get the information. And and I think the movie is sort of presenting us with a moral understanding of the world, a moral philosophy that then it dares us to try and live up to by, by the nature of the narrative that it spins. And it's just to me a, a brilliant um, Coen brothers achievement. And I have to say, I want to talk about the rabbis here in just a minute, but the mid right at the middle of the movie, he sees the second rabbi um, and that little sequence about the goy's teeth for my money, that is the best filmmaking of the Coen Brothers' career. That little uh, mini film within a film is, um, to me, just a remarkable little sequence. Um, the, the may or may not be nonsense parable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, with the yeah, the goy's teeth, right? And, and I, yeah. I, just, I just think it's it's an amazing uh, cinematic achievement. <laughs> and so I, I want to talk at some length about the about that scene particularly, but also about the rabbis, um, which I guess we could get into now. So. There's a like Job who's got his friends that come and give him advice, right? Uh, throughout throughout his story, Larry goes to um, first a Three. friend. 
First a friend, then the first rabbi. Yeah. The junior rabbi, then the active rabbi, then the senior rabbi. Yeah, who, who he's denied access to at the end. He never gets in. It's like Oz, right? He won't see him, right? And so and he's mm-hmm. de- ultimately but, denied access to Marshak. Yeah, but we'll talk about Marshak too because we discover maybe something about him as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Marshak is is kind of amazing, actually. <laughs> so, but uh, but the first one is uh, Rabbi Scott, I think his name, and it's played by the guy from Big Bang Theory. Um, and so, he is like a very young. I mean, he's the guy who plays. <laughs> Um, Wallowitz from the Big Bang Theory, right? And so he's exactly as nerdy as that guy is, right? And, and right. an extremely young and seemingly kind of gives him pointless, stupid advice. Um, but Which is just change your perspective. Look at, look at the, what was the end is look at the, the, parking, the, parking, the lot. parking lot, Larry. Like. <laughs> yes. But, but think, and so it's, it's meant to sound silly and Larry is immediate, like the entire time just sort of just like putting up with it. But when I think about it, um, I'm not sure that his advice is really a, I think his advice is actually the best. It, it's not bad advice, right? And it's not really significantly different than what Nochner will say to him later on, right? The the older guy um, who's who's the, the the you know closer to the sage, right? Um, so his advice is basically, we don't know. I mean, why God does anything? Um, it's not our place to ask, right? Um, and then the you know there's a line. Um, the boss may not, may not be right, but he's still the boss, right? And so, um, and then he says, look at the parking lot, Larry. And, then, and he says, just pretend you're from an alien world and you've never seen these autos and that kind of thing. And, and, and he said, like, look at it with just a sense of childlike wonder, right? And mm-hmm. ultimately, I think that's what the movie means. I think, I don't think that we're... We're meant to laugh at him in that moment, but when we think about it, I don't think he's given bad advice. I think he's given him the only advice he really should have needed um, at that right. point. Right, and like when he tries it on until he meets the lawyer who kind of shames him out of it. Yes, at a market. It actually, yeah, it does actually seem to help for a second. Yes, he he decides to be a better person and and to help people or something like that, right? And he has this sort of flirtation with a sexy neighbor, um, which that scene he's on his roof and he she, he sees her na- sunbathing nude, a clear allusion to David and Bathsheba, right, right. Uh, from the Bible. So there's many um, biblical references in here. But yeah, that first trip to the rabbi is fascinating because it seems like, oh, that was a big waste of time. But in retrospect and upon multiple viewings, I don't really see a significant escalation in wisdom from him. And I think really, had he been able to just sort of um, approach life with a childlike wonder, um, perhaps that's all that that's the only lesson he should have needed. Right. I mean... but the more he pushes on 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 um, someone giving him wisdom, the worse things get. Yes, um, and that's you know so so you have that. Um, but the situation was so we didn't mention we mentioned the student who's who there's a South Korean student. And the fact that he's South Korean is important. So I'm gonna I used to live in South Korea, so this is kind of funny. Um, in South Korea, there really was a tradition and. I don't want to sound slanderish, but it, it, it's real of, um, of what they call, they used to call it apple boxes. So you leave an apple box with a, with money, um, for your professor. If you were in a, in a, in a bind, 
And we were actually warned as, as foreign teachers by the Korean staff to be very careful on accepting any anything because it could be it could come with a bribe. Mm. Um, and that was like culture. It wasn't seen as a big deal because it was a seen as a payment out of shame. Mm. So I, I want you to like I want you to I, I need you need to understand a culture like a very big difference in because Korean culture is hyper confusion. So. So the issue is not that you want that like you're going to get a gentleman's C. Um, the the C is is still bad, and everyone will know what it really is. But you're paying your way out of having to deal with the shame. Mm. It's it's a form of blood money. Okay. All right. So it's a bribe, but it's not it's not a bribe in the way that it would not be seen as dishonest in Korean culture in the way we would see it as dishonest. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, 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 uh, the, uh, situation it gets you in is a real situation in Korea, by the way, the truth is not a defense against libel Okay. because of the shame issue. So you can say something true about someone and it's still considered slanderous. So when the, when the, when the dad of the Korean student comes and like picks on faces like culture clash, culture clash, <laughs> um, he's actually being correct. The dad actually is right. It is a real culture clash. It is not just a corrupt situation. Yeah. And I was actually laughing because like, I think a lot of, I mean, it's a joke and it's exaggerated, but I think a lot of people would assume that this was almost a racial, a, a racial stereotype and it kind of is, but it's not entirely false. Yeah. That's interesting. So, so Clive, the student has, um, gotten an F on an exam, and it was an exam about Schrodinger's cat. Um, the Schrodinger. And he understood the concept, but not the math. Yes, yeah, he understood the story, but he didn't understand the math. And and for Larry, he says, "Well, I don't even understand the story. The story is just there to is, is a helpful illustration. Um, the math is what is what it is, and so you can't do physics without math. So for him, I mean that that right there is the personality flaw, right? He he can't understand abstract." Um, notions of story and narrative, which is what religion is, right? <laughs> religion is not transactional math with definable ends. And so um, right right there you have like Larry's, Larry's problem in a nutshell. Um, and when Clyde, he takes a phone call with Cy Abelman in a very comical scene, his reaction when he sees the envelope is just priceless, um, just amazingly great comic performance there by Michael Stolberg. Um, but the um, uh, when Clive leaves, and I've watched this over and over. We see the desk and we, I do not see an envelope there. Okay. No, you don't. And it's never, it's never, you never see anyone set it down. I watch it over and over to see if it's there somewhere. And then um, Clive leaves. And when Larry looks down, there's an envelope there and he opens it up and it's full of money. Right. Um, and he decides about three grand. It looks like, which in 1967 money is a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, and, and so then he sort of uh, later on pulls Clive back in and accuses him of this. And Clive of course denies it. And um, then the father has this conversation with him and he puts him in another, it's a kind of Schrodinger's paradox when you think about it. Um, Cause he says, um, if you accuse him of leaving money, I'll sue you for defamation. And, and he said, um, 
And so, um, and then, well, then but what? if you don't change the grade, I will sue you for, I will I'll, expose you for bribery. <laughs> for, yeah. I'll, I'll accuse you of theft. Right. And so, so he did leave the money. No, that's defamation. And so he both, <laughs> so he both does and doesn't leave the money at the same time. Right. It's, it's, it's exactly like Schrodinger's paradox as much as I can understand that even. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a hilarious situation, but it's also so perfectly suited to this theme in the film that even goes on with his dealings with Columbia, Columbia Record Club. Like he gets a record because he didn't order it, right? <laughs> it's like completely defies the, the logic of that Larry that makes sense to anybody. Columbia will send you records that you don't order and they send them because you didn't order them, right? Instead of ordering them. And so you have this, um, this complete, Larry's just immersed in a world in which all of his logical assumptions collapse, right? And, and he can't stand on any firm ground uh, because he has no idea of, of what is true anymore because um, all of his assumptions about the world have failed, right? And so Clive and his um, father, that situation is what leads him to the first rabbi, right? Um, and in the meantime there, um, there's that accident that you talk about. Um, and so... That does. I mean, if I'm in that situation, particularly growing up evangelical, right? It's like God is trying to give me a sign about something, right? This has to mean something. Um, and God has engineered the universe to this for, for this to happen, for me to have an accident in a different place at the same moment that Cy Abelman dies in an accident. What is God trying to tell me about this? Um, and so he goes to Nochner. He gets to the senior rabbi or to the, uh, the acting rabbi. Um, and Nochner tells him this story. Um, of, of the goy's teeth. Okay. And the story is just a, a brilliantly constructed. There's a Jewish dentist who has a, a, a Gentile, uh, I forget his name, Russell, Russell Krauss, I think his name is, um, a Gentile patient, uh, on the back of Even his. Even though that Russell Krauss is kind of a Jewish name, which I thought was interesting too. Oh, interesting. But... Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but on the back of his teeth are Hebrew letters. Um, and he looks up what they mean and they mean, help me save me. Okay. And so, um, the, the dentist, um, goes, what's his name? Doctor, I forget his name. Uh, but anyway, the dentist goes to, um, all these lengths, try and figure out, um, what this could mean, right? He, he looks up the cup, the Kabbalistic, uh, there's a numerical equation. He calls, which does come out to be a phone number, but a phone number that leads him to nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it leads him to a grocery store, right? And he goes <laughs> to the grocery and, and it's funny. He shows him calling the grocery store. Hello. Is there a goy there named Krauss? <laughs> <laughs> which is a hilarious moment right <laughs> and then he shows up and there's nothing there right um groceries what have you and uh and then he and then he goes to the not to knockner himself and then knockner tells the story of of the dentist coming to ask him about the help and and he just he wants to end the story with tell me what can such a thing mean and then knockner for him the story's over and 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 larry's like well, what did you tell him? And then Nochner can't understand why Larry wants to know. Because for Nochner, just the experience of something wondrous and mysterious is the point, right? Just experiencing something magical, right? Uh, with no. Although the rabbi does actually commit kind of a sin. Oh, okay. How so? Because he can, like, um, because he completely shrugs off the goyim. Yes. At the end. At the very um, end. <laughs> yeah, it was like because 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 then uh, Larry goes, "Well, what happened to the goy?" And he goes, "Who cares?" Yeah, the and, goy. and that actually is that, that actually is supposed to be like a. I think it is a subtle slide on the. I mean, on like the the middling rabbi's character actually. Mm. Um, 
uh, which because that that rabbi, I was you also get that in the eulogy they give to uh, Cy Abelman about being a serious man, yeah. Which is also what Cy says that uh, Larry is, yeah. Um, but um, or at least according to his wife, um, but the the interesting thing about that is that um i was i was thinking about it he he's giving this kind of flip it sounds super flip um his his eulogy um about Tikom, about the world to come and all that and we don't have a land of milk and honey because like you know we don't worship god because that's selfish here's the funny thing though i've actually had rabbis tell me that that's the difference between christians and jews mm. that like that like that like uh that like um, Christian virtue, even though it's real virtue, is always slightly tainted by the fact that heaven makes it transactional. Mm. And like the world to come may or may not be heaven, and it's not. It's not individual. I mean, you it's know? yeah. It's like I think even kind of uh, mainstream. I won't say orthodox because that means something specific. Small o orthodox. I think even orthodox, small o orthodox Christians will scoff at something like the prosperity gospel for being transactional, right? But there is a way of seeing all of Christianity with its promise of heaven as as transactional. Yeah, whereas like, you know, according to the Jewish perspective, yeah, you get an afterlife, but you don't get to know anything about it. It might just be this forever. Like, mm. <laughs> or, you know, it might be reincarnation. There are even Orthodox Jews who believe in reincarnation. For, like, there's all kinds of things we you're not supposed to know. Um, to speculate on it, which which you, know, you you have to be a Kabbalist, otherwise they tell you not to do it. And to be a Kabbalist, you have to be married and have a job and over 40. Okay. <laughs> traditionally speaking. Um, and a man and a bunch of others. Like, there's a bunch of limitations because they're afraid that you're going to go insane. Mm. Which is part of the stuff of Marshak, actually. So... I I, I, de- I, w- I definitely want your um, insight on Marshak actually, and, and maybe this is a good uh, a good chance to go to, um, to go to that. But before we leave Nochner, um Larry does coax him into telling him the story, the rest of the story, and, and he asks like, "What would happen?" He he just says, "What?" Well, I mean, he he went on his life. First, he started looking for more signs, um, and he didn't really find any. And then after a time, he stopped looking, and he just like without even knowing it starts living kind of a rich and fulfilling life just by doing the daily things he always did. His life doesn't really change. He's just happier living it. Um, all for having experienced the mystery without having gotten an answer and just been okay with that. Right. Um, mm. and, and Larry is unable to accept that, um, as a, totally. as a, uh, as a resolution to his problem. He wants an answer. Um, and he says, why does God, um, make us give give us the questions if he's not going to give us the answers and then the rabbi laughs he says he hasn't told me <laughs> which is a, a great a great jewish coming decline right um and so um um and then and then then to escalate the comedy he does do this thing which you're suggesting rightly is maybe an ethical violation he asks him so what happened to the goy the goy who cares and then it cuts to Sai woman's funeral right it's a remarkable sequence though it's all backed up with his Jimi hendrix uh, guitar music and, uh, and and it's just a, it's a remarkably shot and cut and edited uh, sequence. Um, and you could go on and on just analyzing the details of that. It, it, to me, it's like a masterclass in filmmaking. Um, it's that- so good. It, but 
it's so like if if you come from a Jewish background or know anything about Judaism, like it's actually pretty accurate. Yeah. The stuff that he's saying, like it's not like it's it comes off as a joke, but then you're like, oh, like no, this is part like, and then the eulogy that the same rabbi delivers afterwards is also tied into that, like, but. Even in the names, I, I like the names of the rabbis. So, like Scott, the junior rabbi is almost like a like he's all, he, he has he has Scott. It's a it's a goyish name. Yeah. Um, um, Nochner is a very like 19th century uh, Yiddish Yiddishish name, and Marshak is is like a Polish Rebbe, mm. um, ultra orthodox name. Yeah, like. And, and and he is ancient. I mean, he looks barely alive, right? Right. And and so like like also it was interesting. Like you could almost like even though this is one synagogue, um, and it's one, it's not it's not portrayed like they're different um, um, denominations of Judaism. Uh, they're the rebbe's are like completely different. Yeah. Uh, like because not only is Marshak ancient and barely alive, he's also like hyper orthodox yeah yes Um, yeah he's i mean he looks like he's a direct like like directly from the old country right yeah yeah he i mean he's he's dressed like a hasidim he his beard is uncut he uh you know he's doing the double hat thing i mean so like uh (laughs) so you get this weird this weird um thing where you're like oh and everyone talks about how wise he is but then that brings us to after so uh larry has refused audience with marshak yeah um but marshak does talk to all the people who get bar mitzvah yes so danny yes and and so this was that's when things start to tie around so danny has his bar mitzvah he gets really high before (laughs) and and because he's really high and he's been listening he's been alternating listening to the uh to the Torah portion you're supposed to read for your uh, bar, for your bar mitzvah with his music and smoking pot all the time. So it, the implication is he gets high to try to take to try to like force himself through it. And ironically, like the act of getting high brings his memory back, and he actually does really really well. Yeah, the Torah portion <laughs> reading. Um, he does it like exceptionally uh, uh, correctly, which is hilarious. And so everyone's like everyone's super proud, and for a second it looks like. The the divorce has got like the wife gets close to Larry and they 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 touch and and um uh Judith apologizes to Larry and then informs him that I respected him and even wrote that's when you discover those the tenure letters yeah there's there's like a coalescence <laughs> around Jewish tradition like this beautiful tradition right it seems like that moment brings everybody back together as a center right and and, and it is really it is very lovely actually. Right, but but then Danny goes meets Marshak, and Marshak just rambles off Jefferson Airplane lyrics to him, tells him the name of the members of the band, gives him his transistor radio back, and tells him to be a good boy. Yeah, and you don't know if this is a lesson or if Marshak's senile. Okay, well, so okay, so here's okay. That's a really good question. I've always taken that. All right. So when you let's start with his trek into the office, right? There's a slow walk. I mean, it's like approaching a deity almost, right? And he's this this ancient. Yeah, and Danny's still very high. Yeah, 
remembered. It's true. Yes. Um, oh, and first of all, before we get there, but note about Nochner, like his advice is essentially the same as Scott's has been. It's basically approach the world with childlike wonder, right? And you but will be fine. But he says it in a much more Jewishy, indirect way. Yes, absolutely. But it's it's the same <laughs> advice, right? He's just more experienced in giving it. But it, it is essentially the same advice. And then so flash forward then to the end of the film when a child still does, uh, or still a child wanders into the the presence of the ultimate sage, okay? Well, he's um, actually not a child anymore. Well, I guess technically not, right? He's 13 he's at this point. Kiddish, he's, he's been given his kiddish cup. He's now a man. <laughs> okay, but he's just exited childhood then, like minutes right. earlier, right? And, yeah, minutes earlier. Yeah, and, and so he um, um, walks through this very big and very stuffed full office, which is full of like – science experiments it's full of like um cultural artifacts like paintings it's full of I mean, it looks like there's several several volumes of the talmud in the background like it's everything it, like it's everything you would expect to be jewish and more like it, it's almost like the library of alexandria it's like all of human experience right you're walking into right. this very humanistic um a form of, of worship through the intellect and through learning, right? And so we're always told how busy Marshak is. And every time we've ever seen a glimpse of him, he's just sort of sitting at his desk. Um, and it sort of seems like- Thank yeah, but he's thinking, right? So he is busy. He's busy sort of soaking in human experience. And so when, the way I see that little speech, when he he, he knows what he did, uh, and, and so he's done his research. He's looked up about Jefferson Airplane, right? And, and he sees a little bit of wisdom in those lyrics, right? And he knows that that's something that really resonates with Danny. He gives him his radio back, the one that was taken from him as a boy. He gives it back to him now as a man and, and says, be a good boy, <laughs> okay? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's something, it's an extension of that wisdom that, that the rabbis have been giving all along is about like maintaining the sense of childhood wonder. Marshak, even though he's an ancient man, is still mm -hmm. like in fascination with the world. Like he's just surrounded himself not only with religious artifacts but scientific and literary and artistic. And, and so I think that there's a way in uh, there's a way in which the movie is making making a case that this form of Judaism is portable, like all the way through what seems like trashy counterculture, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you totally get it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think it's actually a really beautiful and inspiring moment, actually, even though it seems like he might be senile. <laughs> right. Like, but it also, yeah, he, he's so slow in response to you. Like, so is he picking everything up or is he senile? You don't. And again, I think that that question of you not knowing is, is important. Yeah, you don't know if he's being profound or senile, and you can choose to take it either way. Yeah, and maybe um, what is profound is being naive and and senile as an old person, right? Maybe that is the highest form of wisdom <laughs> available to us. You know, resting not in our own knowledge, to use sort of Christian terms here, right? Um, and, uh, and and but yet, and Larry never gets this experience, right? Um, right. Yeah. I mean, there's also a series of dreams that happen in this because the dreams get worse and worse. That's true. So like he dreams, for example, that he saves his brother because his brother gets increasingly. So his brother seems emotionally disturbed, but he's a mathematical genius more so than even Larry is um, and uses it first to cheat at cards, even though he doesn't keep the money and doesn't care about the money. And he actually seems to have cheated the mob, which yeah. is unfortunate. Um, yeah. Um, but then he gets arrested for 
for solicitation and sodomy, yeah. which you never really figure out if he's actually guilty of. Yeah. You don't know. Because he seemed like he doesn't really understand what's going on. Yeah, he seems like, I mean, would you put him on the autism spectrum or something? If, if we're, Yeah, it, it seems like he's stereotypically like like almost like movie-style autistic. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But you don't know if he was soliciting, because he doesn't deny it either. Um, but it, it, so that, that gets very dark. So this leads to Larry having a dream of giving him the, the bribe money and sending him to Canada, across the river to Canada to escape, you know, persecution. And then, um, the, the, the intimidating Goy neighbor shoots him in the river. With his like, son, has his son his shoot son. him. And says, shoot, what's it- kill the Jews or something like that. Yeah, right? but what's interesting about that is like. Is is much of a intimidating jerk as that goy neighbor is. There's hints that the goy neighbor is actually, you know, the the gentile neighbor is actually protective of Larry. Well, in the see that in the one moment when um Mister uh, when Clive's dad, I forget their last name, um, uh, uh, when, when he's talking to him, the goy neighbor then comes over and says, "Is this man bothering you?" Um, I took that as like, here's a person even less white than I am, right? Or than you are, right? And so it's like there's a way in which he sees the purity of his neighborhood um, under uh, increasing attack by by the Asians in this case, right? Not just right. the Jews. And so I kind of took that as as a an even further example of his racism. But we don't know that. But we don't know again, that. <laughs> and right. again, you could read it in either direction. Like you can read him of being – Larry obviously also reads it as racist, but he doesn't say that, but he definitely acts like he reads it. But you don't really know. And the only indication that you get that he's actually racist is in the dreams. Yeah. I mean, so, so, you know, again, so you, 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 this movie is reveling in bleak ambiguity. Yeah. And so in one way, like, Larry doesn't understand that his neighbor is actually somewhat charitable towards him. And in another way, that neighbor should like that neighbor could be totally a racist douche. You don't know. And also you don't know if Larry like Larry's thing about the, the property line too. Um, since the lawyer who was figuring that out dies, you don't know if Larry's complaint is legitimate or not. Right. He dies right at the moment. He's going to give him the answer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know if like Larry's actually the one being the asshole. Yeah. Or, yeah. or a jerk. Sorry, you have to beat that. One hundred nine forty six. It's okay. I got it. I, I jot these down. Um, <laughs> so that's okay. No. Um, and, uh, and absolutely. I think that there's uh, a way in which this movie is saying something about anti-Semitism though. Um, it, or it, it's raising it as a specter. Um, even in this yeah, world, there's a specter of anti-Semitism because the what the one goy you you meet may or may not the, the may or may not be anti-Semitic. Yeah, and, and even though he seems like completely outnumbered in this community, right? He still does seem like the person with power. You see him frequently hunting with guns, right? And um, right. And, and, and so you do. Well, have, you, you you just can't hunt. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. No, no I mean, like it's it's against kosher law. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. I, I see what you're saying. I know. Um, but yeah, so he comes back with a deer strapped to his roof, right, um, of his little car, right next door to Larry. Um, and so yeah, you've got this. Um, I, and I think the ending of the film, where there's this tornado 
like approaching the school, right? I, I, I kind of see that as a maybe a symbolic manifestation of a storm um, coming for the Jews, right? So there is this kind of, and maybe this is just me because I just finished reading The Plot Against America in my, for my Roth class. And, and it's really hard for me to not think about Roth when I watch this movie because it's so immersed in Jewish culture, right? Um, and, but the last chapter of that book is called Perpetual Fear. So even after all the, the stuff with Lindbergh, resolves itself, there is this sense that there's always going to be this looming possibility of, of pogroms, right? Um, and, and anti-Semitic violence. And, and so I think the, the movie sort of implants that strategically throughout the, the narrative, just to kind of like illustrate that, that Jews, no matter how seemingly safe they are, uh, there is a way in which um, anti-Semitic violence can still erupt <laughs> yeah, it mostly seems to come out in a dream. Also, the way the police treat the Jews, um, which is respectfully, but like they're utter weirdos. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, he doesn't understand what sit and shiva means, right? <laughs> right, and like, and um, and so like they kind of respect it, sorta, but not really. Um, but you don't know, and this is again, this is this thing where you don't know if that's legitimate misunderstanding of the culture. So the cultural class theme comes up a lot. Yeah. Um, so you have it coming up with the Jews to South Koreans, but also everybody else to the Jews. Although there's so there's so few Gentile characters in this movie. Yeah. Um, like it really does seem like they teach at a Jewish university. They're going to a Jewish day school. It is remarkable. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. Um, I, want, I mean, I want to start uh, pushing this to an end. I got to go to bed here eventually. Um, but I, I want to ask you uh, one thing about this movie that always still puzzles me. I, I've, I've probably seen this movie seven or eight times at this point. I don't know. And um, and so I'm wondering about um, his brother's book um, that he's working, The Mentaculous. Uh, it, it's sort of like a journal that he keeps that is like when Larry opens it up, it's full of like, I mean, what you would picture a serial killer diary looking like it's full mm -hmm. of just madness almost. Right. Um, uh -huh. and, and he kind of looks upon it in horror. What, what is the the function of that? Like, what is it? What is it doing? It, it reminds me of Kabbalistic stuff. Oh, interesting. Okay. So Kabbalistic stuff, is, you know, the Kabbalah has all this mystical stuff, but it's also highly mathematical. Okay. And there's like diagrams about the universe and God, and God's perpetual separation from it and the breaking of the world and what it like, how the world is, is not entirely um, healed. It's all part of Kabbalah. And when you open that, that journal, like the weird thing about the Mentaculus is like, you got evidence that his mathematical skills are legit. Mm -hmm. That's part of what he gets in trouble for. Mm -hmm. is cheating at an illegal card game <laughs> um, and cheating by just being good at math. Yeah. But um, you can't arrest somebody for math. <laughs> right. <laughs> he says, yeah. Um, but, but also like that, that book is supposed to look a little bit crazy, but also a little bit Kabbalistic, which is again, beyond um, and beyond the, the sort of, uh, perspective of Larry who would see that stuff as crazy in either direction, right? Like, it, yeah, and I would suppose even doubly so. I mean, he looks at it upon he looks upon it with horror, right? And, I, and it makes sense because it looks like math, except it's utterly like mystical and and it's mystifying, right? And so it right. it defies any kind of rationality that he as he understands it, right? And so <laughs> right. while it, it, it's almost uncanny, it looks like math, but it is it is um, outside the bounds of math. 
Right. I mean, but, you know, that comes up in Kabbalah a lot. I mean, if you want to not watch another movie where this comes up and plays into about how the math looks like looks logical and ends up not being logical, and and, and then this movie literally drives someone to drill out part of their brain, um, is Pi, which is which ah. the, this also comes up with. I need the, to see uh, that movie actually. Movie. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Arnofsky's first movie. It's one of my favorites. Um, I totally need to see that movie. Yeah. And it's very very Jewish. Um, but. But yeah, so you you have this sort of like it, the, the the closest thing that I can think in Christian culture would be to it. I mean, because there's this notion in Jewish culture too. I guess in uh, Eastern Christianity, there's this notion of the holy fools. Oh, we've talked about this with Tarkovsky with our Tos- yeah, Tarkovsky yeah. episodes. Yeah, well, there there are similar things where there's Kabbalistic like like mad rebbies. Mm. Um. And like, uh, like, like touched by God, Rebbe's who are crazy, but also. Are, so, is this like, uh, like Rebbe Lowe from the Golem story? Would he be yes. fall into that? Okay. Yes. So, like, you know, you, they're insane, but their insanity is comes from a like a, a, a wisdom, and there's like there's math and logic to all of it too. And but it, when you look at it from an outsider's perspective, it looks totally nuts. Mm. Like, yeah, and you know. Uh, the thing about studying Kabbalah is you're supposed to be a certain age and, and all that. So you have all this, like, there's a lot of even Kabbalistic stuff that comes up in this movie. Um, but what's interesting, I guess maybe, maybe we can tie this off because you have that, but then you have the ending. So yes, you have the, the, the storm coming. You also have the fact that you don't know if Larry has cancer, right? He's clearly getting some bad news from the doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Well, one would think. Maybe I shouldn't say clearly. Well, um, you, they, they talk about his lungs and something coming up in the lung X-ray, but he's not being told what, and it ends before you can find out. But, um, but what's interesting about that is there's like Ebert interpreted interpreted, and some other people interpret the the last movie is uh, is actually ethical judgment on. On Larry and Larry's family for ethics violations. That's a, that's a way to read this movie. Yeah. That, but, but I don't think the movie is that unambiguous. Um, I think that also just might be more Job stuff. Yeah. Like, and it's not it's not ethical at all. Like, it's just this is one more thing that's going to be thrown your way. What are you going to do with it? It's the randomness of the universe. It really does. I mean, I keep going back to Roth. It reminds me a lot of Nemesis. Um, I don't know if you've read that book. It's about this polio epidemic and, and, it, and, and the, the character is very going through a very Job like uh, sort of experience with it. Um, but there is, I mean, I can see the interpretation of divine of like ethical violations. The, the, just the timing again, the mystic, I mean, just like the timing of the car accidents seems to mean something right. Um, at the moment, Larry's looking at a bill, a lawyer bill, um, for $3,000. Right. And he looks mm-hmm. at the envelope, that, which is about $3,000, which is about $3,000. <laughs> right. And then he erases the F from Clive's, um, uh, book from his uh, grade book writes a C minus. And it, as soon as he writes the minus, the phone rings um, with the doctor, with the doctor's phone call. Right. And so I, maybe this is the movie tempting us to do what Larry did. Like it has to mean something. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but it does really make you wonder if there is some sort of divine retribution happening right there. And, and But it seems like really out of, <laughs> Like really, really not commensurate with the sin. Like, yeah, that seems like overkill, right? <laughs> like, yeah. like, 
if you're assuming it's divine retribution, which means you also have to assume that the worst is going to happen. Yeah. That makes God a real jerk. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and look, in, in Jewish culture, like you're supposed to be able to argue with God like out and out too. Like even though God's the boss and you're not supposed to understand, there also is Job's arguments not seen as illegitimate, just like um, uh, Abraham's argument over Sodom and Gomorrah isn't seen as illegitimate. And, and Jacob wrestles with, you know, he wrestles with God and therefore becomes Israel, right? Right. Yeah. So like this, and and in and, 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 uh, Talmud, you know the Talmudic story about uh, about the rabbis, um, you know, uh, making a joint, making a unanimous decision, and God and another rabbi breaks it and calls God down, and God agrees with the dissenting rabbi. But then the rabbi's like, "Uh, uh-uh, you told us if we could quote you, and we and we came together that our that our rules are binding." And God goes, "Oh yeah, even it'll even by me because I because I agree by, like this is a story in the Talmud." Yeah. Um, Interesting. So like, so the Talmudic sages actually argue God down. Interesting. They change God's mind. That's interesting. Like they change God's mind by saying, look, you said, you said our consensus is kind of a miracle. We have a consensus except for this one dude. Come on, respect our wishes, God. Yeah. <laughs> because you said so. That is fascinating. Um, and that, so that tension is in Judaism. Like, and when I was, uh, when I was being, you know, because I, I uh, when I was going through stuff as an adult and learning, like, like really learning my, um, you know, Jewish culture and Talmud and stuff, um, to kind of figure out my own Jewish background, um, I remember going, wait, these two things coexist, like this ability to argue with God, like outright, and like, like basically say, hey, God, you're being a jerk, and also like Job and you don't have to understand and you do it because God says so <laughs> like, like they coexist in the same religion. How does this work? Um, and this movie's playing with that. Well, I mean, I think that that paradox is just an essential part of, of Jew, Jewish culture um, into Jew. And, and it probably springs out of Jewish uh, religious traditions. I mean, you can't think of Kafka without paradox. Right. And, uh, and, and I, I just think that the Coen brothers thrive on it as well. And, and, and I think that they're tracing it back to um, certain paradoxes in the faith. And the beauty of a paradox is that you have something that's then unresolvable and therefore perpetual. Right. And, and I think that that's what's so wonderful about like the Jewish religious tradition um, is that you've got this this never ending commentary, commentaries on commentaries. Right. Uh, that mm-hmm. that perpetuate the the act of of wrestling with God through time and space. Right. And, and I think that that's um, like one of the kind of um, just like wonderful things about that, about the faith. And, and, and I think that really, honestly, Christians um, when they're at their worst is because they have stopped doing that. Um, they become dogmatic, uh, in mm-hmm. just the, 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 the assumptions that they, um, then start worshiping rather than the God behind those assumptions. Right. And, and so I think that this movie is clearly made by and for Jews. And, <laughs> but I think it actually has a lot to teach Christians as well. I mean, it, it, I always think that Christians need to wrestle more. Not with the not with the Jewishness of Christianity, but with the alienness of Judaism. Mm. Um, 
a little bit because uh, there is a real alienness to it. I mean, part, I mean, there are some historical reasons why. I mean, if you want to look from a secular perspective, like rabbinic Judaism actually kind of develops in response to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're both like we're. I, I'm not. I'm not religiously Jewish, but um, we're both traditions and both faiths are in some ways the survivors of a faith that sprung both, but doesn't exist anymore. Temple Judaism does not exist. Right there. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, there are, there are ultra Orthodox who want to bring it back, but like nobody, like there's no temple. There can't be no temple Judaism. Like, and so like in some ways, both traditions are commentary and developments and eschatologies from a religion that's gone. Mm. Um, and you know, I mean, and, and for, for Jews, um, for rabbinic Jews, the, the tradition is the answer. And eventually, yes, the Mashiach, but right now it's tradition is what you got. Mm. And for Christians, Jesus is the answer in the church. But those are very different, like, <coughs> things, because if, if tradition is all you got and tradition is how you interpret, you know, the two, the two Torahs and one Torah is literally tradition itself and the other Torah is the words – and so you're all constantly interplaying with two. That's a dynamic thing. And um, Christianity is dynamic too, but in a very, very different way. Yeah. And I think a lot of a lot of people assume – I mean I know a lot of Christians who just assume that their world is a lot more like Jews than it is. Um, that, that, like Judeo-Christian culture for me – and I, I don't mean to cast any dispersions on it. I think it comes that 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 nomenclature comes out of a real want to be inclusive and recognize, you know, the the common origins of the faith. Although we should really probably talk about Abrahamic culture. Yeah. But um. But uh, it's when you really look at it, Judaism and Christianity are radically different. Um, Judaism, Judaism's vision of justice and God is very very different. It, you know, and this gets into that. Mm. Um, Judaism, like, there might be a reward for everybody, and like everybody might get a, a, a place in the in the right in the world to come. But like, you can't know what that is, and you know, the, the the wages of sin is death, and by death we mean death. Yeah, we don't mean hell. So, so like that's that's uh. It's a very different worldview, and it's unclear if God is a source of evil or not in Judaism, because God's the source of everything, and so like that 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 kind of paradox that you get in Christianity, uh, this, it's it's a problem for for Jewish culture, but it's not the same problem. Yeah, yeah, that's so fascinating. And again, I want to go back to Nemesis, which is Roth's way of kind of dealing with these same exact issues, right? And you've got. Um, um, kind of radically different religious. There's like sort of three religious perspectives that are brought uh, into conflict in that book. Uh, and, and I just think it's a fascinating book to read. Maybe we'll talk about it on the show someday. Um, but um, any uh, before I, I want to ask you um, as we close, if there's any kind of last thoughts you have on this, but also before I do that, I want to kind of invite you to come back at some point. Um, I know that you'll, you'll be busy here. Um, have you ever read any Cynthia Ozick? Yeah. Have you ever read The Pagan Rabbi? No, um, but I can 
I can I, probably look into it. I would love to come back and have you uh, discuss that story um, with me on this show at some point, because um, I would love your perspective on Cynthia Ozick's work, which um, I, I find just utterly fascinating and enigmatic in a very Cohen-like way. Um, and, and yeah, I think she is one of America's most underappreciated and underread writers um, of, of really high, great legendary quality. Um, and I would love to talk about the pagan rabbi with you at some point um, down the I road. Would- love to too because that's also it's a short story so that's pretty easy yeah yeah it's a short story it's nothing uh it's nothing too demanding it's just uh it's a it's a puzzle right uh, and so I, i'd love to know your your thoughts on it the perspective you would bring on that and so listeners if you're out there listening uh go dig up a copy of the pagan rabbi um and and while you're at it i also love uh cynthia ozick's uh short novel the cannibal galaxy um if you uh if you're, if you're interested in a good a good book uh a good thought-provoking book about education uh the cannibal galaxy is might be for you. So, um, but let's back uh, back to the Coen Brothers here. Uh, one final thought from you, Derek. Do you have any uh, any last thoughts on this movie? Yeah, I think this is a good defense against people calling the Coens totally nihilistic. Ah. I think this movie is a is a good defense, and I think if you read this movie and go back and look at other movies that may seem nihilistic, such as No Country for Old Men, or even The Big Lebowski, mm-hmm. I think maybe you'll take a different view of it. Um, absolutely. I, I, I think you're totally right about that. It is easy to see them as kind of just postmodern hucksters, right? Who are just kind of reveling in surfaces and form, right? Um, but I do think that there is um, very profound um, philosophical and, and theological thought uh, underneath their films. And it really comes to fruition, I think. And it's very obvious to see in this movie. Um, and and, and, and I, I honestly, I think that there's something to the argument. I think that as somebody, I know I work in higher education and I'm supposed to teach people things, but I do think that there's a wisdom in naive innocence as well. <laughs> and so I think that might be the ultimate kind of wisdom. And so I, 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 am, I find this movie very sort of not only hilarious, it's very funny, um, but also just kind of harrowing and profound as well. Yeah, I think it's a great movie. I think it is. It is hilarious, but it's it's kind, it's not fun. It's not Big Lebowski hilarious, right? It's 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 very funny in in very different ways. I would you need to come in with with subtle black comedy in mind. I, I'm struggling to come up with a movie that it's like uh, in that way. I, I really not even other Coen Brothers movies are like this. No. no, it's even like more subtle than like a Wes Anderson movie or something like the, the humor is, is, is very kind of uh, low key and just, and it springs out of the, the, the precise details and really the, the great performances. It's, It's just chock full of really hilarious performances too. Very subtle and detailed performances by, by the entire cast. Um, so, all right, Derek Varn, um, thanks so much. It's so, it's, it's been too long. It's great to have you back yeah, on the show. Great. It's good to be back. I, I think I'm supposed to do like some kind of uh, keywords or something, but we'll probably wait till you re- till you figure out yeah. what's coming on next. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna reset <laughs> the show a little bit in the new year, and, uh, and I need to be reinvigorated by it somehow, and uh, and I need to take a little bit of a break uh, in order to do that. But I have enough shows backed up that the audience won't know the difference. Um, but yeah, we'll <laughs> definitely have you on for that. We're also that the McIntyre uh, After Virtue episode uh, will happen eventually. We'll get to that once we yeah, get some free you, time. You, you, you get to hear my Aristotelian work 
Christian friendly takes on things. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Um, and, uh, and also in the meantime, audience, if you are, um, uh, if you love Derek, as we all do, um, go check out his, uh, show symptomatic redness, which will be closing up and will soon be replaced by pop the left over at the zero books, uh, podcast. Feed. <laughs> if you just, uh, find zero books in your podcatcher, oh, uh, you'll find that. Yes. If you want to hear me on another podcast too, the only podcast I've been doing in the last six months, months actually is a reading group um on from alpha to omega on um two books uh andrew Kleiman's um defense of marx and uh 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 mike mcnair's revolutionary strategy and if you if you are into deep 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 obscure takes into leftist history and mathematics uh, you can hear me talking about there it's like a 28 part series and i'm not joking oh so uh yeah but that's that's been it so those are my only appearances these days uh that's awesome well buddy it's good to hear your voice it was a great conversation great movie go out and check it out if you haven't seen it it's uh well worth your time uh for c Derek varn my name is danny anderson thanking you for listening to another episode of the sectarian review podcast <laughs>